Good morning. We're, um, I want to jump right into the text uh, in a couple moments, but I do just need to say I feel especially in over my head this morning. That's not an uncommon feeling for me. But um, I don't know. I just think some of the things we'll talk about today are things that I'm just very aware that I don't understand them, much less feel qualified to help you understand them. Hopefully not things that are irrational so much as transrational that do kind of transcend our capacity to intellectually understand in some way. So I don't know. We'd just love to lean hard on God's grace together. I hope I'm a little self-conscious today that I sound gross because I've been sick, so I hope I just don't sound utterly disgusting. But um, let, let's pray, and we'll, we'll go right into the text. God, under the canopy of your grace and goodness, um, we are covered again. And it's so good to be with our brothers and sisters. It's so good to be in your presence and to know that you delight to reveal yourself to us. You, the God who have chosen to um, confound the wise with foolish things and who have chosen those things that are despised and those things that are marginalized to make yourself known to us. I know today, especially as we um, just really look at the mystery of suffering and the mystery of your cross, there are just so many things that are counterintuitive for us. There, we're hardwired. There's so many things that we've learned that just conspire against the kind of truth that we'll look at today. But we just do want to open ourselves up to your spirit that you could deconstruct everything in us that needs to be deconstructed, that you could build up everything in us that needs to be built up, that you would Give us the flexibility and the adaptability to be led, to be bent, to be shaped in whatever ways that you would shape us. We do so want you, King Jesus, to make yourself known by your spirit. And we ask for that now, for a revelation of yourself through this time we have now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, amen. I initially called this message on smallness and suffering. The more I prayed about it, I think I'm leaving the smallness mostly out today. But suffering, so lots of excitement. 11.30, suffering. Um, um, Hebrews is the text I want us to look at first. uh, Two lectionary texts today that I'm so struck by. First, Hebrews 5, beginning with verse 1. It says, Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal with the ignorant and wayward, and I'm thankful because I am both of those things, since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, listen to this, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And here's the phrase that blows my mind, where I really want to focus a good bit of our attention today. Although he was a son, he, Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered. Did you catch that? Jesus, even being a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. We'll go back there in a moment. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we'll stop right there for right now. 
Jesus learned. Can you imagine that? There were things that Jesus had to learn. There was a kind of perfection that even for Jesus could only go through the route of suffering. There are a couple different ways of speaking of perfection, one of which I think the, most, the way we think of it is perfection as sinlessness. And in this way, of course, Jesus was utterly unique. He is the uniquely sinless Son of God, sinless in a way that you and I will never be. Until we see Jesus face to face, as First John talks about, and when he appears, we are transformed into his likeness, we are not gonna be completely sinless. So we will not be perfect right here, right now, in the way that Jesus was perfect. But there's another kind of perfection. And this is the kind of perfection that has to do not with sinlessness, but with that, about wholeness or completion, being complete for an intended purpose, being whole, uh, being knit together in a way that God is able to, to use us for his intended purpose. And in that way, Jesus had to learn that kind of perfection through suffering. I don't know how you feel about this, but while we're not gonna be perfect in terms of sinless, this kind of perfection is a perfection we are called to. God does want to complete us. God does want to make us whole for the intended purpose that he desired for us all along in a way that, and that's the really tough part, can only happen through suffering. Suffering is the only route and there are no others. Believe me, I've been looking for loopholes all of my life, searching the scriptures, trying to find the other angle. Surely there's another way. Surely there's another way towards completion. Surely there is another path towards wholeness except for suffering. Surely suffering was something Jesus did on the cross for me long, long ago so I don't have to suffer at all and that now God can use something completely different to make me whole, right? Aren't you down with this? Like, that's what I wanna hear. But I'm afraid the bad news is this. If it took suffering for Jesus to be complete in what God called him to do, what are the odds that it's gonna take something other than suffering for God to make us complete, for God to make us whole? This is the route. Even Jesus was perfected through suffering. And if that was the route for him, it will be the route for us. The cross is not just for us in the sense that Jesus died for our sins, though he did, and we profess that. But the cross is also for us. And that now that same Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. We go the same way that Jesus did, the same route. Richard Rohr calls Christianity the way of the wound. The way of the wound, the way of the cross, the way of the brokenness is the way that's modeled to us through Jesus. And with that in mind, I want us to go to the one other text. This is the gospel text. One that I find entertaining and fun and terribly challenging, kind of in the spirit of all this. Mark chapter 10. James and John, who of course are brothers, the sons of Zebedee, they're known as the sons of thunder, came forward to Jesus and said to him, this hits me comically every time, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Santa, whatever we ask, Jesus, I bet... I bet you do. This is the kind of thing that we say to Jesus. And he says to them, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They're sons. They want to make their mama proud. So they have this whole thing worked out. If when Jesus, you come in all of your glory, you can have one of us in the right hand and one on the left, everything will be great. Mom will be proud and we'll be very happy. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking, which has incidentally been true of basically anything I've ever asked Jesus. Never knew what I was asking. Never knew what I was saying yes to. Never knew what I was signing up for. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, Jesus asked. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, this is my translation in parentheses, stupidly, we are able. (laughs) Because you better believe, based on the very premise of their question, they really don't know what they're saying. We don't know what we're saying when we say yes to follow Jesus. No one knows what they're saying when they say yes to marriage. There are so many things. Like when you say yes, you do not know what you really mean or what you're really saying. We are able, having no idea what they really mean. But Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they, be, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Now, of course, Jesus is radically turning upside down James and John's perspective on what it would be to be great in the kingdom. A lot I could say about that. But I want us to really focus on this phrase, can you drink the cup? Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? That, for Jesus, is the cup of suffering. That is the cup of sorrow. We see, for example, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, if there is any way, if it might be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The cup for Jesus is the cup of sorrow. It is a cup of loneliness. It is a cup of isolation. It is a cup of deep, profound pain. It is a cup of grief. It's the cup of sorrow. Um, I've thought a lot these last few days about a little book Henri Nouwen wrote. Anybody read Henri Nouwen before, The Priest? I mean, so I cannot recommend this book highly enough to you. He wrote a little book called Can You Drink the Cup? where he used this, this very text. It's short, maybe eight or 90 pages, I think. But he kind of, he starts off by talking about his ordination to the priesthood when he was first given the chalice and kind of uses that as the metaphor for the cup. And the book, he, he very beautifully describes, you know, some of his own journey. Uh, Nowen was an incredibly uh, brilliant man, taught at Harvard and other places, but who ultimately felt called by God to go to a L'Arche community. These places, L'Arche was a movement founded by Jean Vanier, where basically able-bodied persons come to live in community with severely disabled people, all kinds of issues. So now when the brilliant priest, lecturer, scholar goes to live with a man named Adam who is severely disabled, he would care for for basically for the rest of his life. And there's a lot that, that he shares that comes out of that journey from being around these people who in the eyes of the world would seem so profoundly broken, but who become such a source of healing and wholeness for now and but he uses, he, he just keeps coming back to this image of the cup, uh, the cup of sorrow. And now one talks about how the cup of sorrow is yet also in the kingdom, the cup of joy, that there is joy hidden in the sorrow, that it's kind of all drinking of the same cup. So he, he uses this language then of first holding the cup, holding your life, holding your own wounds in the presence of God, not ignoring them, not pretending they don't exist, holding them holding them before God and before others, then lifting the cup, and finally then drinking the cup, drinking the cup all the way down, all the implications, all the sorrow, all the loneliness, to to share fully in the cup that Jesus offered us to drink. I think about that so often, 
as a person who never wants to hold my own wounds in God's presence, certainly not before others in community, as a person who never wants to drink the cup all the way down. I come to the image so often to, to hold the cup, to lift it, and to drink it. Because the central mystery, I think, of the Christian gospel, what sets it apart from all the others is that there is some mysterious way that God always makes himself known through suffering. I don't understand how this works the way it does or why it works the way it does. But God, the, the, our, a conscious sense of God's presence is always much more likely when we're suffering. It's in our most broken places that Christ always appears to us. This is not just a one-off thing that has to do with Jesus' own crucifixion. It's why I think over and over again we see in the New Testament that whether we talk about Paul or the author of Hebrews, even for the gospel writers, the center of Christian faith is not just God, not just Jesus, but very specifically Christ crucified. Christ crucified is always the center of everything because we believe that there is this mysterious way that is through the wounds of Christ, through the brokenness of Christ, through the suffering of Christ, that God brings healing to the world. And so if we are going to experience the hope of resurrection, if we're going to experience joy, we also must enter into sorrow. We also must share in the sufferings of Christ. And even though I don't know how to make sense of it, it still remains true. God is always revealed in the clearest, most profound way through our suffering and through our brokenness, as much as we don't want to hear it and as much as we want to find another way. I've, I've thought a lot, especially these last few days, the more I get acquainted with people in sanctuary and the beautiful folks in this community and hear some of your own stories, bear witness to some of your own stories. There's just so many folks within this church who I see suffering in a way that just so mediates the presence of God to me, that so speaks of the goodness of Jesus to me. Uh, Michael and Jean Boley, uh, Michael was in our first service this morning, just a dear couple in their 60s, both of them trained in Christian counseling, just, just humble, godly people. And a few weeks ago, I was having dinner in their home, and it was one of those things, you know, I really do believe that there are just some places, some sort of thin spaces where the presence of God is especially present. Walking in the door of their house, they're just so filled with the sense of God's presence. These are just good, God-loving people. Uh, but Jean has Parkinson's disease, in the last few years, it's continued to accelerate, and so the further along that goes, the less mobile she's becoming. So for a long time, she was resisting having to walk with the walker, just didn't want to do it, felt like she's always been a strong woman, that everybody else around her has depended on her, so the idea of having to be cared for in that way was so awful. So she resisted that, finally had to start using the walker, um, then continued to still have some falls, had a real scary one where she was on her bathroom floor for 90 minutes and nobody knew where she was and finally had to, had to have a wheelchair at this point. So, you know, sometimes she'll have more strength. Some weeks are better than others. It's back and forth. But on the whole, th this thing has accelerated, the decline. And just to see the kind of joy and beauty that I feel in their home, uh, she, to this day, continues her counseling ministry. So people come to her home where she ministers to them, still leads a small group of women in Bible study every week. One thing she told me, she was talking about how much she missed coming to sanctuary to church, but how really at this point her energy is so limited that she said, if I, if I came to church, that would be like days worth of trying to recover from that. So now she doesn't come to the services. She watches them online precisely so she'll have enough energy to continue the kind of ministry that she does. Just this wonderful woman of God. And you see, to see the kind of sweetness coming out of her and in her husband caring for her, 
from this very broken place is it, powerful to see. I don't understand that because I certainly don't think in scenarios like that this is God somehow teaching a lesson. I don't think it works that way. I, I don't know why it is that uh, people suffer who live such devout and wonderful lives, but, but it happens. And somehow it's not around the brokenness, not around the suffering, but smack dab in the middle of it that we see the power of Christ most, most gloriously revealed to us. I've thought a lot about Brent and Janice as of late. I think many of you know that Janice has had these ongoing health issues for the last couple of years where it's up and down, seem to be resolved, then it's not. I, I'm not saying this because they're in the front row. I don't know better people than Brent and Janice. Like, can someone say amen somewhere? Like, who's, who, who are better people than Brent and Janice? I'm pretty sure that they're perfect in both categories, like the complete sense and the, like, the sinlessness. Like, I mean, Brent and Janice, they, they are the most loving, generous people. They are so compassionate. They just ooze it. You just, you, those folks, to, again, to be with to, is to feel God's presence because they love people so well and so beautifully. Uh, it's hard for me to comprehend why these issues are not resolved with Janice and why the back and forth, because I'm like, wherever you are on your journey, I think you're further along than I am, so I don't, I don't understand the logic of any of that, but what I do know is that I see the presence of Christ and the goodness of Jesus reflected in their lives only more and more deeply as this process goes on. It's just something about how God works, it's something about how the kingdom works, that wherever we're the most broken, wherever we're the most wounded, that's where God is working the most beautifully. Paul uses this kind of language in Corinthians that we are the broken lamps, that it's precisely in the places that we are cracked that the light of God's goodness is able to shine through us. Not, he can't shine through, that's this image we get really through, through in Corinth was where they made lamps and there's this idea then that it's like, it's through the cracked, broken lampshade that the light gets out. Not through kind of spiffing it up, not through kind of polishing all of that, not from playing down our wounds and our weakness, but owning them, embracing them, holding them, Believing that there's something useful, that there's some way that God is known precisely through these wounds. We don't know how it works, we just know that it does. I keep coming again to specifically the centrality of Jesus as the crucified God, how that becomes the image that comes up over and over again. Yes, he's resurrected, so it's not like we're trying to keep Jesus on the cross, but that is something that's so consistent through the motif of Scripture, is that God reveals himself specifically through the crucifixion. Um, one of the places where I see this the most, and I've, I've, I've had this hankering to want to preach from there lately, maybe at some point I'm going to scratch this itch, but I love the book of Revelation. You know, I used to, used to be the book of the Bible that I like the least. It's now probably my favorite. I adore the book of Revelation. There's so much that I, that I see now there that I couldn't see before. I don't have time to get into all of my stuff on Revelation, but I'll give you a couple handles at least. One of the things that most helped me about the Revelation is when I came to believe that the title is accurate. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, wow. Not the revelation of cryptic end time schemes. It's the revelation of Jesus. So if you're not reading it, looking for the revelation of Jesus, you're looking for the wrong thing. My one other eschatological tool, this is for the 1130 service only that changed my life, is when Jesus ascends, the angels are looking at disciples and they say, why are you looking to heaven? And they talk about, you know, this same Jesus will return, that will help you as well. This same Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, this same Jesus. There's my eschatology is wrapped up in those couple of phrases. That's neither here nor there. What I'm really trying to say, what I love most about the book of Revelation though is that 
instead of now thinking that Revelation was, I used to read it as like the Gospels tell me one story, the Epistles tell me one story, but then Revelation is something else. Almost this pin the tail on the donkey, here's just this whole other thing to the story that we didn't see before. Revelation, I fully believe, tells us the exact same story that the Gospels are telling us, the exact same story that Paul is telling us, but tells it from a different perspective, from an aerial perspective. We're getting the same story through a very different lens. So, for example, one of the things I find most fascinating then about Revelation is that, and I promise this is going somewhere, is that you have this kind of parallel all throughout the book where John will hear one thing, but he'll see something else. And the thing that he sees greatly reinterprets the image of whatever it is you might think that he hears. That's what brings it to perspective. So what you see and hear is the same but different. So there, I could go on about this for days, but my favorite example of it is in Revelation 4 and 5 when Christ is revealed. And John hears, he hears a voice that says, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what he hears, lion. And as soon as you hear lion of the tribe of Judah, what do you think? You think strength, you think power, you think about the lion's jaws, you think about the lion's paws. It's like I'm composing a hip-hop song freestyle right now about lions. You just like, the lion, I mean, it just conjures all these images of like power, strength. Rawr. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then John turns and looks, and what he sees is not a lion. What he sees is a lamb standing as if slain. He sees a slaughtered lamb. And what the story that Revelation tells through different formats, through different scenes over and over again, is how God has conquered the forces of evil and darkness. God has conquered the power of death, hell, and the grave through the cross of Jesus. Through his sacrifice, he is overcome. It is through sacrifice that his followers overcome because they imitate this lamb. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, loving not their own lives even unto death. So the two witnesses, they give their own lives. And it is through the sacrifice, through the letting go of holding on to life, that God prevails over and over. Even when Jesus comes in full glory later in Revelation 19, riding on a white horse, he's wearing a robe that's been dipped in blood, but it is not the blood of his enemies. It's his own blood. Somehow, mysteriously, God conquers not around the cross, not despite the cross. God prevails through the cross. Through the cross, Paul says in Colossians, God has disarmed the principalities and powers. That's through the cross, Somehow through the yielding of his own life, the phrase we read in Hebrews, the reverent submission of Jesus, somehow through this sacrifice, this is how God's love prevails in the world. It's what happened on the cross through Jesus then. It's how God prevails now. It's how God will prevail in the future. Always been about the cross, the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. Don't make me start saying Pentecostal stuff like, Y'all aren't shouting as good as I'm preaching and terrible things like that. Maybe a little bit true, but it's always been the cross. It's always been the cross. Why is it that we, that we think now, while the mystery of God has been revealed to us through the cross of Jesus, why do we still think that there's some route around suffering for God to complete his work in us? 
there's a, you know, there's a reason why Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because everything I'm saying is patently absurd. Like the idea that you can win through losing, <laughs> the idea that through bleeding and letting your life ooze through your hands instead of trying to protect it, that somehow healing and life comes, makes no sense. In human terms, it seems utterly ridiculous. And yet this message that seems so absurd to the world is for us the wisdom of God. That somehow through wounds, somehow through bleeding, somehow through brokenness, this is what God is using to make the world right. And wherever it is that you're broken, wherever it is that you're bleeding, wherever it is that you're fractured, wherever you are bruised, this becomes an occasion to allow your own wounds, your own pain, your own bleeding to somehow be mingled with the wounds of Christ. And as we share in the fellowship of his sufferings, we also then share in the hope of resurrection. I don't know why it is that all of those things that bruise only push us deeper into the presence of God, but it just does. You can't tell me, I won't believe you. You can't tell me that your closest moments to God in your life have been when you've been doing well. Don't you like it when, that just sounds so obnoxious to me. So. You, but you can't. Don't, you can't tell me that. The times in your life where you've most powerfully experienced God's presence have not been when everything was clicking. No. Let's tell the truth. When things are going easy enough, we don't really feel like we need God that much. We start coasting. We start thinking we're doing fine. And then it's in the moments when you feel so broke down and desperate that all of a sudden the presence of God becomes so real. And you start living dependent on grace again instead of just kind of selling. That's when the really wonderful stuff happens. I just feel like I lived, um, I've lived so much of my life not knowing that kind of brokenness, not being able to enter into it. There was a time in my life when I, I could have even talked about some of these things in kind of an intellectual way, way but I didn't really understand it. I didn't really understand brokenness. I was given to this, um, I have a word for this. I use it sometimes when I hear certain kinds of sermons. I feel like I can say this here because I've never heard one at Sanctuary. But I had what I called like um, faux humility or faux brokenness. Do you know what I'm saying? This is this preacher convention where you attempt to make people feel like you're just one of the boys and you get what's going on. So this is the thing where, like Pastor Bob says, you know, I really need to share my humanity with you and builds it up really big and it sounds really dramatic or whatever. And then it becomes three weeks ago, I was driving to the church and my kids were in the back seat and they started misbehaving. And I, Bob, as the man of God, I yelled at one of my kids in the car. Can you believe that? Me, a preacher, I yelled, I yelled at one of my own children in the car. Pastor Bob has brokenness. That is not the story he's telling right there, my friends. <laughs> It's deeper than that, I promise you. I, once someone cut me off in traffic and I honestly thought about giving them the finger. That is not the brokenness right there, my friends. That is the surface level stuff. I used to be given those horrible illustrations where it'd be so like, oh, look, I'm whatever. Not understanding like, like real brokenness. But especially this season of my life where I understand real brokenness and, uh, and real pain and real suffering I found that one of the things that I, I, that I struggle with the most at this point in my life is that I don't have any difficulty believing that God's working through your brokenness. I'm fine with that. I believe that God is, is working through yours. Like, that's, that's okay. And especially people like the Bullies or when I talk about even the, you know, the Sharps, especially people for whom, like, I think, well, they're wonderful people 
they have these sort of external afflictions. Of course, God's goodness is going to be revealed through that. But I struggle with the idea that God could reveal himself and his goodness, that God could make himself known through any kind of suffering, any kind of wound in me that's self-inflicted. That, that to me seems beyond the pale. Because just like the Bible says, you made your bed, you have to lie in it. <laughs> Y'all don't remember that verse? Is that not scripture? Just like the good book says, if you made your bed, you have to lie in it. There's this sense that if it's my fault, if, if I am the cause of my own suffering in some way, God can't use that. God can't leverage that. A couple days ago, I was on the phone with a man of God who I greatly admire and trust, about 20 years older than me, um, who's just one of those folks that occupies that kind of spiritual father kind of space in my life. And we had talked through a lot of things. It was so wonderful. And I'd just really been pouring out my heart. And he's such a grace-filled person. I just, I don't know, I felt real tender and broken open and specifically asked towards the end of the call if he'd pray for me before he got on the phone. He said, sure. So he began to pray. And as he was praying, um, I just felt the Holy Spirit just touching some really deep things in me. He, he was specifically praying for a release of guilt over past mistakes, sins. And he just as he's praying all this, you know, I, I start crying. And I, did, I definitely felt like the Holy Spirit was working in me. But I do this thing, if you, as you get to know me better, you'll find out that my, um, my brain is a, well, it's a terrible place to be, honestly. It's a terrible place to be trapped inside. I'm incredibly analytical and, I mean, like, problematically analytical. So nothing comes easy. I have a spiritual gift of making easy things hard, actually. <laughs> it is what I do. And, man, it's like he, he got to this point in the prayer where he's, this is what, this is what he was saying. He's like, God, help, help Jonathan to see that even his failure, his mistakes, his sin, that, all of, that even all of that was somehow part of your plan and how you want to reveal yourself in him and through him. And as he's praying this, two things were happening inside of me simultaneously. One, there was a part of me that was saying, yes, God, please let that be true. Like desperately wanting to cling to that. But another part of me that was fiercely resisting. Because I'm going through my whole thing. And by the way, I still think this is true generally. But you've heard me say, I think most of you, that I don't believe that everything is scripted. And I don't. I do think that we're called to co-labor with God and that some things are more open-ended, so I don't believe everything's scripted. And I'm thinking, well, I know God does it ordain sin. And, and I'm putting through like all of my mechanisms, like all of my protests where that cannot be true. I would like it to be true that somehow mysteriously in the economy of God's providence, sovereignty, free will, however that works, that somehow God was making provision for my own failure before there was failure and that somehow that still fits in the story. Like I want that to be true, but I just can't believe it. And I just, I just felt everything in me rising up against that. And I had a moment, this was so funny, as much as I felt like God was working through my friend as he's praying, in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me about as clearly as I ever hear God speak. And I don't claim to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit this way all the time. It's never audible when it happens, but there's just, these happens a handful of times in a year where something will be this clear. And it honestly felt like a bullet to my brain. It so came from outside me. It was so stark. It so rattled me. As I'm kind of having this inner resistance, I know I heard the Holy Spirit say, I told Peter what he was going to do right before he did it. And that was part of my plan. 
and you've told people it was part of my plan, and I have. I preach that sermon everywhere about how the reason, part of the reason that God put such weight on Peter in the early church is not despite his failure, but because of it. If God's gonna use anybody, then they have to be wounded enough to be humble, like it requires deep humility for God to use anyone. So I have preached this, that this is part of why God chooses Peter, to use him the way that he is, is because from early on, he's gonna be so acquainted with his own humanity. He's gonna know it so deeply that it's gonna make him live from a very humble, wounded place so God could use him. And I just felt the Holy Spirit pressing that so hard on me. I knew what Peter was gonna do before he did it. I prophesied that. That was part of my plan. You've told people it was part of my plan. Why, why can't you believe that for you? Why can't I have made provision for you even before? Why can't all of this be part of the story? Oh, man, then I'm, I'm just weeping. And then I'm just and repenting and all sorts of things. Like, but, it's a, but I realized I realized in that moment that, like, that that was my one category. That was my subset of suffering where I would say, God can use any kind of suffering. God can use any kind of grief. God can use any kind of loss unless it's self-inflicted. And then once again, in the words of the Bible, you're on your own. <laughs> That's not the Bible. What if this God is so good, so creative, so wonderful, that there is literally no kind of tear that he cannot redeem? What if this God is so surprising in his ability to, to, to bring new life that there is no sort of grief, no sort of pain, no kind of suffering that you can name, think of, imagine that he cannot leverage to bring something good and something beautiful, including that which is self-inflicted. Nothing gets wasted. God uses it all. And strangely enough, the mystery that I think is really at the bottom of things is that it is precisely in those moments when we have felt the most broken, the most discarded, the most like completely out, that Jesus has been made known to us in the most clear way. And it's how, it's through all of that that God wants to make himself known to others. That means we have to stop sticking our heads in the sand and pretending that we don't have this brokenness. We've got to let God shine through those cracks. We've got to let the light of God shine through those broken places. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Corinthians. I haven't said that in the other service today either, but that's exactly what Paul says. God has put this treasure, God has put this light in earthen vessels so that they will know that this power comes from God and not from us. What if instead of your brokenness disqualifying you, it's precisely what qualifies you? Because there's no way God can use you unless you lean hard on him. And there will be no confusion whatsoever when God does use you as to who gets the glory out of that. Because if God uses through your brokenness, if God uses through your failure, nobody's gonna be, nobody's gonna be misunderstood into thinking that it's because you had your act together and you were so good and spiffy. Well, of course God uses someone like that. It will be more like, and is this the compliment you want? How on earth? There, there is no other explanation but God. That doesn't sound awesome, but at this point in my life, so help me, that's what I want. If there's gonna be any accolade, I want to be that one. I mean, just like, well, God is good. <laughs> no other way to explain that. Jesus is good. That's, that's what we want. 
Maybe it's not what we want. That's what we need. That's the way that God wants to perfect us. That's the way that God wants to complete us and make us whole. It's precisely by holding all that is broken before him and allowing him in the same way that we pray and we ask God to sanctify these elements. He transforms, he transfigures our suffering. He transfigures our pain. He transforms that through his own power and gives us the hope of resurrection. Stand with me if you would. We're gonna come to the table in just a moment, especially appropriate today. Can you drink the cup? But I wanna pray with you before we do that. And God, I just ask now that, hmm, just let, let there be a kind of vulnerability to settle over this room now, Lord. Whatever scars, whatever pain, whatever wounds that we would be most tempted to conceal, let them be revealed, not in a way that embarrasses, because that's not how you are. You don't expose things for any other reason except for healing. And I even feel you so strongly in that spirit. You only expose wounds so that you might heal them, never to embarrass or shame. And because we trust that, because we trust you, we invite the light of your spirit now. We invite the light of your grace now. You see all the ways that we're broken. You see all the ways that we're bruised and damaged. Lord, we just take this moment now to consciously hold those things before you. And if you feel comfortable, maybe even like um, just kind of lifting that to the Lord with your hand just this way. Lord, we just, we just, whatever it is, whatever that comes to your mind first, whatever it is that immediately just kind of screams at you, you know that's your thing. That thorn in the flesh, that thing you can't seem to shake, that memory that continues to haunt you, that thing still has a way of tormenting sometimes. Lord, we just hold that in your light, the light of your presence. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you into these wounds where we need your mending, where we need your bandaging. We pray that in the same way that your wounds, Jesus, became a source of healing and hope for the world, God, could you transform our wounds so that you would heal through them God, could you transform our brokenness? Let us identify our brokenness in yours so that your life can come through all these broken places. Could you use our stories in all of their fracturing and all of their complexity? Could you let your light in even through that, Lord? We hold these things before you, Spirit of God, and we invite you. We invite your healing. We invite your grace. We invite your strength that we would be able to join you in becoming wounded healers, God, who are able in the same way that you did to make our own wounds available for the healing of others around us. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.